I think that with the reopening, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. I want to see things get busy and I want to see smiles happen again, but I just don't want everybody to go back to the same thing. That would be a waste of a year. Mm -hmm. It would be so many bad things happened last year. I think that we can walk away from this learning a big lesson. From StudioPod Media, this is the Muddler Podcast. The Muddler exists to tell stories behind your favorite cocktail bars. Cocktail bars become beloved by their patrons for many different reasons. Everything from the vibe, friendly service, convenient location, great music, and of course, the delicious, well-crafted cocktails. But each bar has its own unique story, why it exists and how it came to be, as well as the cocktails made and who actually serves them. I'm TJ Bonaventura, and I'm the host of The Muddler. On each episode, we'll sit down with the owners and bar managers behind some of the most innovative and forward-thinking bars around. Each season will center around cocktail bars in a specific city. Up first, San Francisco. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Golden Rule Spirits. So Golden Rule Spirits is a producer of two canned cocktails, the Old Fashioned and the Margarita. I know what you're thinking, canned cocktails, not really my thing, but I'm telling you guys, if you like a good crafted cocktail, you're going to love these drinks. They're perfect for going to the golf course, for bringing them on the road, vacation, camping, and they are dangerously good. They're about the quarter size of a normal can. You pop these bad boys open, you throw them over ice, and you're good to go. So again, Golden Rule Spirits, goldenrulespirits.com, at Golden Rule Spirits on IG. Check them out. When you first enter a Blackbird in San Francisco's DeBose Triangle neighborhood, you could be forgiven for thinking that the bar is a bit of a mystery. With dark, moody lighting, nicely refurbished wood, decadent red booths lining the walls, and a gigantic wall-covered menu with a variety of craft cocktail options, after a few visits and a lot more time spent at the bar, though, you start to see all the signs of a friendly neighborhood cocktail joint. The accommodating and helpful staff, the generously lengthy happy hour, the pool table tucked all the way in the back, it's got everything you might want in your local spot for a perfect libation. And that's exactly what Blackbird aims to provide. Located at Market and Church Street, right on top of the Church Street Muni Station, Blackbird is well located to welcome the foot traffic of the surrounding Castro Mission and DeBose Triangle neighborhoods. It's perfect for an after-work cocktail or for a more romantic affair before dinner. It projects comfort, familiarity, and ease, and it's been a mainstay in the area since 2009 when it opened. Over a couple cocktails on a recent weekday afternoon, we sat down with operating owner Matt Grippo. Matt moved from the Midwest to San Francisco about 11 years ago with the goal of starting a new career as a bartender in the city. After getting an introductory bar backing job at Blackbird, he hasn't looked back. He's been a mainstay since his first day on the job. Matt part owns the bar with his business partner, Sean Baguera. Matt gives off the exact same vibe his bar does. He's friendly, humble, low-key, and welcoming to everybody. Let's talk about the vibe and the history of Blackbird real quick. So where does the name came from? So <laughs> where does it come from? <laughs> I actually, I had a conversation with Sean this morning when I saw your questions because, you know, that part of the bar I obviously didn't have anything mm -hmm. to do with. It, it happened before, before I was here. But Sean 
opening this bar with his then partner, Doug Murphy, who's passed away now. So if you kind of look at their relationship, similar to what me and Sean is now. So Sean was going to be like an operating partner for Doug. Doug was going to be the one that kind of executed everything. He had the background in opening bars. Sean also worked in tons of bars in the Castro and has a history. Doug was kind of the one with the vision that was going to you know put those things together. He was one of the original owners of Moby Dick in the Castro. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, kind of knew what he was doing. And the name, the name doesn't have a, 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 like a real interesting story, but it was really just like they wanted to choose a name that wasn't going to sound like it was a glimpse in time. Like they wanted it to be like timeless, not generic, but also just like easy to remember, nothing too pinholy in, 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 in like any period of time, which I'm, you know, I want to give examples, but that, yeah. that can happen from time to time, whether it's the way your bar looks or the way the name sounds, things like that. Yeah. Cause you guys definitely in here have a rustic kind of old school feel that will, withstand the test of time, if you will, so to speak. You'll give the newspapers below the bars, you have the wooden tops, you've got the old Western type of feel behind the bar here. Like, has it ever, like, the look and feel ever changed throughout the years, given that you've been here? Has there been an evolution? It, it actually has. And in the very beginning, a lot of people would never think that it looked the way it did if you hadn't seen it for yourself. But in general, the vibe of the bar and the aesthetic of the bar was all about that original back bar. A lot of the elements were meant to tie into that, which is, you know, it's a, it's a centerpiece. It's beautiful. It's, you know, it's a hundred over a hundred years old. It was part of the bar that was here previously, which mm-hmm. was called the expansion bar. And there's an old bell. I got the ring for the first time in a long time, a few weeks ago when we did last call, because that used to always be what we would do every night. Mm-hmm. And I forgot about it, but it's, you know, it's a great little piece of history. We kept it on. They kept it on. I, I had nothing to do with it, but mm-hmm. I don't, I have no intention of getting rid of it either. Yeah. It was meant to be felt very like a comfortable bar, timeless and in a sense. The expansion was a longshoreman bar at one point. So it was like, it was very blue collar, but definitely things have changed quite a bit. You wouldn't recognize certain things if you saw the bar in its first opening appearances. Mm -hmm. Um, About five years in, after I started managing, Sean and I decided to do some upgrades and updates for a five-year anniversary. So nothing was too dramatic. It was just kind of things we always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. to Just zoom in on all those little details that we think make the bar feel so great. Got it. Is there anything specific about the bar other than the back bar? Because the back bar obviously is the first, like when you come in, you're like, that is just like eye popping. But is there anything specific about here that you were like, kind of goes unnoticed to the regular patron that you're just like particularly proud of? I think for the bar to look the way it does after, you know, we're going into 12 years of business, I'm just proud of that. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like we've made subtle adjustments and improvements over the years. And I think some places open the doors and they look amazing and it doesn't take long for those things to get unraveled. And just staying on top of it, Doing little things here and there. I was really happy that we put a disco ball in, mainly, okay. <laughs> mainly because we used to install it once a year for New Year's Eve. And then finally one year, I was like, we can't keep doing this. Let's, let's just, just keep it. Let's We're just, keeping it. Let's just put it in. Let's get it installed professionally. But we would put it up just for New Year's Eve. Okay. And it's it's not easy. I actually like the juxtaposition of the disco ball with everything else. And sometimes you can definitely miss it if you don't mm-hmm. look for it. What's the vibe, I guess, if you're a patron, Joey, our writer, used to frequent this place because he lived around the block. And he was like, this is a place I used to go to when it was like cold and foggy, which it is often in San Francisco. He goes, I just want like a hot toddy or like a solid old fashioned. Like, he goes, this was a spot I would go. I mean, if I were to just use one word to describe it, I just want it to be comfortable. Comfortable, but also I want people to be pleasantly surprised when they get to know the bar. I always like to keep expectations low (laughs) so we can deliver with bringing those expectations higher for the next visit. I want it to look and feel like a neighborhood bar, but I want you to be able to come in here and get a drink you weren't expecting to drink, have it exceed your expectations. I try to stay away from trends. I know sometimes you kind of have to lean into them to appease people. And that's one of the hardest things to do. It's like, how do I make this comfortable, familiar place 
but I can't obviously please everybody. I can't have every single bar in my back bar. I tried. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. <laughs> but, you know, you can do your best. You can try to make it as comfortable for everybody. And that not just trying to explain somebody, trying to explain to somebody, you know, just like the vibe of the bar. And I said, it took 11 years of us curating the people that come in here. You know, if people come in here and they don't bring good vibes, they're going to either make people feel uncomfortable or annoy people. You got to get them out. So if you keep that up day in, day out, the people who come into your bar will be a reflection of of that bar you want it to be. In talking about the COVID era with Matt, we knew that Blackbird would be a little different from other bars we'd visited so far. For one thing, Blackbird relies heavily on foot traffic. And while the Debose Castro area didn't become a ghost town early in the pandemic, the traffic in the area did take a hit. The busy work commute was no longer a thing, and the bar could no longer count on customers stumbling in off the Muni trains after a day at the office. Also, while Blackbird does have a parklet out front, the constantly busy Market Street may not be as parklet-friendly for patrons as other locations. So how did Blackbird handle the pandemic with these challenges baked in? Well, I mean, I think that the Saturday night we worked, which was the day before everything shut down, we all kind of had this, like, it doesn't matter how many times we wash our hands, like, this is bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And then I think at that point, most people knew that the lockdown was coming. You know, we were all in here and we all kind of freaked out a little bit. That part is is a little fuzzy for me. Okay, so I know it's a little bit blurry, but like, do you remember any conversation that you guys had where you're like, okay, well, what can we do? What in the short term can we do to like get by? Because obviously you had employees. I'm sure you had to do some layoffs or just like furloughs or, or something. Like what was the initial plan, if you can recall that? My first instinct was to tell the staff to get on EDD navigate that site, figure it out because it's going to happen. And I think myself included, I was in denial, but everybody was in denial. And I felt like just, okay, let's wait, snap out of this. We're all going to have to figure this out. So the sooner you guys get on EDD and start that process, the better, because once the floodgates open, I'm sure we've all heard the stories and nightmares of people not being able to get those things figured out. So I encouraged my staff to do that. And then I took a few weeks off and then that's when people started being like, should we do to-go stuff? Should we do this? Should we do that? I was pretty early on in adapting to being, to being open to it, but I was very much like, I'm not going to do seven days a week. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do five days a week. I'm going to do one or two because there's people out there that want to support us. And I think that's amazing. But at the same time, we're not paying anybody right now. So let's just take this as it comes. So what I did was I kind of set up two days a week where you can order ahead and pick up either cocktails or bottles or kits, things like that. Mm-hmm. When we started doing that, it was kind of like, if I got an idea, I would do it. And then if you were an early adapter to any of those models, the results were great, but it was, wasn't was too far down the road that it would taper off. Because, you know, every week, other people had ideas, and then everything would get flooded. And then so you'd see a great response, and then it would kind of taper off. When we started doing outdoor dining with food, we saw a great response at the beginning, and then it tapered off, just because the city would just keep following behind. But Yeah, I would say the first thing that we did was just turn the bar into like a pickup spot slash retail space. Because eventually, once we learned more about COVID and we we realized, you know, what's safe, what's not safe, I eventually opened the door, had this whole front of the bar set up like a a liquor store Mm -hmm. and had like a sign up page with like five minute time increments so that you can pick a time slot, come through, do a little shopping, take your stuff and go. So what were the things that you were selling? Mostly unopened bottles. You could also order cocktails. I did a lot of allocated, hard-to-get whiskey by the ounce. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were really receptive to that. So almost like a bottle shop. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, I I totally understand where you're coming from. It's like, okay, do we open five, three days a week? It's like, how do you decide what juice is worth the squeeze, right? You have to adjust. And you guys 
you're in a good location, but I don't know what the walking traffic is here, or if it's easy for people to get to because you're kind of in between a couple of neighborhoods and you couldn't really guarantee that it's not like you're in North Beach or you're somewhere else where you're getting a shitload of foot traffic. So you had to kind of be a little strategic with it. Yeah. And with the Muni being closed, that was what made the neighborhood feel extra weird because that was what a lot of the, well, a lot of the foot traffic was people just coming up from the, the Muni. But the people that participated in that, which I'm super grateful for, they saw it on social media or on, you know, somewhere and then came through. I don't think we got a lot of like, just, oh, look at that place. Let me see what that's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, most people around here have their stuff figured out and they mm-hmm. know where they want to get things, but. Your regulars and all that. Yeah. Exactly. And then the other thing that we were talking about is that you have a unique approach when it comes to the cocktails, because a lot of it is pre-made and you have it coming on tap. And you were saying that because you had that experience that it made it a little bit easier for you to move it to canned or, or you know, it already was pre-made. Yeah. So. When you're canning cocktails, which is something that a lot of people either really leaned into last year or figured out for the first time, one of the best ways to execute that is to take it off the tap. Just like kegging beer or canning beer, you want it to come straight from the source. You don't want it to spend too much time outside of that, you know, that vessel. So there was a few brands that were really generous and provided me with the cans and the canning device. And all I had to do was print some labels and then just take right off those taps into the cans and then seal them up. And it was perfect. That was a small part of a few things that we did last year, but it was definitely like pretty seamless because it was, it just went right into what we were doing. It sounds like Matt and the team are taking the positive vibes from last year plus and planning on keeping them around. You can still buy to go canned cocktails from Blackbird and the bottle shop aspect of the business That is, being able to purchase bottles of liquor or taking home ingredients for your at-home bar is here to stay. Now we had spent enough time with Matt at this point to know he's a pretty calm guy. He's even keeled and doesn't seem to get too high or too low. So we delved into some personal aspects of the pandemic. But how does Matt carry the weight of having to handle a team of employees at such a tough time? How does he process that responsibility and manage the stress? He does so by putting the team before himself. And he was there for his crew as they wanted him to be. But that doesn't mean it always has to be easy. Even for Matt, the last year and a half still took its toll. You seem like a pretty chill guy. What personally for you, like during the pandemic, you had mentioned some things that like that were like added, not benefits, but you saw like this silver lining of that. You mentioned that you got more time with your family. Was there a moment where you were just like had a, like a moment of panic? Was there a time that you were just like, I don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> I don't want to make myself out to be some kind of Zen master. Um, I think it's mostly because I internalize everything and it's probably going to pop up in therapy in like 10 years. No, I actually felt like I did as good of a job as I could dealing it with it personally. And also like I'm responsible for about a dozen people's employment. So I, I really tried to just stay one step ahead. I didn't want to put my head in the sand. I didn't want to panic. Obviously, I have my own life, my own finances, my family, I'm a relatively positive person, so there was I never had that moment of like a freak out. I was just trying to think about, okay, what do I do next for the bar? What do I do next for my family? How do I take care of the staff? I think the biggest thing that I did was just, I, I just kept in constant communication with as many people on the staff that wanted it. There's definitely people that were just like, I'm going to go into my little quarantine hole and I'll talk to you in the spring kind of thing or summer. I just tried to help make sure everybody was doing what they needed to do for EDD, keeping people posted if they did want to come back to work, when and what that would look like, making sure everybody was good. I just did what I could. And, and, and thankfully, I never had to worry about my own personal well-being or, you know, for my, my family or anything like that. What we did was we have a place that's outside of the city. And then when shelter in place hit, we decided to just spend time there. My daughter couldn't go to school anymore. So it didn't make sense for us to be in the city. If I didn't have to work, she didn't have to be in school. 
I was like, I just felt like it would be a lot less stressful for us to just be somewhere where we didn't have to deal with all that change. Mm -hmm. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm going to put you on the spot here because you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but like, what about moments of doubt? You had mentioned that there was some points of question. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had, (laughs) I definitely had a lot of moments last year where I rethought a lot of things coming to terms with my workaholism, just realizing that I, I work a lot and I don't know why. And I think it's like a comfort thing where it's like, if I'm busy, I feel like that's the only thing I need to worry about. If I'm going to work, if I'm making money, that's the most important things. And it's not. And <laughs> I'm going to take a drink. Go ahead. Wait of the last year had clearly gotten to Matt. So we paused for a breather. Matt said in the week of our interview, he had gone out to dinner at a couple jam-packed restaurants, which made him really happy, but also very emotional. Obviously, he was happy to see the restaurants full again and people going back out to eat and drink, but also surfaced other emotions for him. The reality of work and how much he pours into his job, how hard he works at Blackbird and what that means for other aspects of his life. He had a lot of time to reflect during the pandemic and getting back into the groove at work was a heavy thing for him to process. I'm not the only person that had that moment last year that we love the industry, but then you realize how much you work and it doesn't add up. I think one thing that I've realized is that for those who have never worked in the industry, they don't know how many hours go into this. When do you come into Blackbird every day? I mean, on an average day, I'm here before noon. And on an average day, I leave around midnight. Yeah. And that's not every day. I'm not going to make people think I work (laughs) 12 hour days. But sometimes you'll be longer. Sometimes you'll be earlier, depending on what happens. That's still, even if if you cut it by two hours, it's still a 10 hour day that you're on your feet, you're working, you're prepping, you're doing things. Talking. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Which is ironically one of the things I like to do leaks. I'm actually like a quiet person. Mm -hmm. I like to keep to myself. Getting behind the bar is kind of funny to me because I am in a lot of ways, antisocial, what I think because it's work, I can figure out ways to get past it. Mm-hmm. And I have to, you know, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> yeah, you know, and like, there's people that definitely know a certain side of me that you don't see very often because you see me at work. Mm-hmm. And that's like when I'm on, I'm trying to you know be a people pleaser. I have like this natural host inside of me. But bartending is near and dear to my heart. The industry is near and dear to my heart. I think that if we take anything away from last year, I just want people to just realize that working yourself to death it's not good, and it should be something we should all reckon with, because I think it's just become the norm. And I know that there's a big difference between having a good work ethic and just working so much for no good reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if it's your business, that's the only way to do it. But at the end of the day, it's like we all got to give ourselves a break. And even if it's not your business, even if it's like someone working multiple jobs, which I've, I've done, I'm very familiar with that hustle. I just wish everybody can figure it out. What are the things that you're going to be really just like jazz remind you of yesteryear, if you will? I mean, seeing a full bar makes me happy. Seeing full restaurants make me happy. Seeing people just in like that autopilot mode, doing what they do best, seeing people enjoy themselves. Those are all beautiful things to see. It's just that dark underbelly. I want everyone to have that moment this year where we can maybe collectively, or even if it's just one place, one person, one industry, where it's like, we don't have to do this anymore. You know what I mean? And not in general, like stop doing what you're doing. It's like, let's find a better way to do this. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure that people aren't working an insane amount of hours. Let's make sure that people have what they need without expecting them to work three, four jobs. I mean, that's another podcast, another conversation. (laughs) Capitalism, we won't go down that route. But I think that with the reopening, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. I want to see things get busy and I want to see smiles happen again, but I just don't want everybody to go back to the same thing. 
that would be a waste of a year. Mm -hmm. It would be so many bad things happened last year. I think that we can walk away from this learning a big lesson. What that sounds like, I don't think I can put into a sound bite, but (laughs) I can try. We're talking Golden Rule Spirits. Joey's here, our rider of the muddler. Joey, you were telling me that you were struggling lately to really perfect the margarita at home with your wife. It's true. (laughs) Tell us more. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. My wife and I love margaritas. I'd say they're the favorite of the couple. They're like our favorite drink to get out together, and and we love to drink them. But we haven't perfected our at-home recipe for a margarita. I I feel like we're we're still struggling to find the exact right mix of, you know, the tequila, the agave, the triple sec, the Grand Marnier maybe, or the fresh lime juice, all of that. We're struggling to put together the right blend for a good margarita at home. You know what would solve that? I think I, I think I know where you're going with this, TJ. The perfect blend is made by Golden Rule Spirits. And so if you want to learn more about Golden Rule Spirits and how to save Joy's relationship, you go to goldenrulespirits.com or at Golden Rule Spirits SF, and there will never be another argument about how to make a margarita again. Babe, I'm coming home with Golden Rule Margaritas. <laughs> So as you can tell, things can sometimes get a bit heavy on the muddler, but that's a good thing. It's a big reason why this podcast exists, to show everything that goes into your favorite cocktail spot. There's so much more than meets the eye. And the more we can show that, the greater appreciation there will be for everyone out there working in the industry. We now transition into the other aspect we love about the muddler, the cocktails. One of the cool things about the menu at Blackbird is that it's almost evenly split between heavy batched pre-made cocktails from the tap and made-to-order drinks. Some of the most popular drinks at the bar are the cocktails on tap, and they're also delicious. During the beginning of the interview, Matt had started by giving us a batch cocktail, the refreshing Kentucky Peach. As we moved into the segment you're about to hear, he whipped us up No Bad Days, which is almost a pina colada-style blended drink. And if you know the Muddler Squad, we love our pinas. So let's go into the menu a little bit. How much influence did you have with the menu overall? I mean, a lot. Every time we make a new menu... I approach it with the idea of I want the staff to have as much to do with it as possible as far as submitting things, submitting ideas, giving me things to think about. And then I take all that information and base it on what works here. I've came up with drinks that I thought were delicious and they don't sell well. So it's like there's a way to approach what goes on the menu, what gets into the final cut of that drink. And I always wanted it to be inclusive. I know a lot of bartenders are really passionate about creating and coming up with things and I don't want to keep it all on myself and it's a lot of work too so if if somebody has a great idea I'm willing to consider it this menu was a little different it was kind of like we have to get a new menu going nobody's really back to work yet we just need something new we have to move it was like a move on point I wanted to make a a menu that was easy on the staff when they came back because they didn't bartend for a year so I kept that in mind too So the menu in itself, without going too long, it's the smallest menu we've had probably since the first menu we've ever done here, which I had nothing to do with back then because I wasn't part of that creative first push. But we went for something simple and fast, but still interesting. Obviously, you want it to be interesting and and, and eye-catching to people, but I wanted it to be something that the staff can come back and just get back there and, you know, within their first couple of shifts, really figure it out. You know, that's been a common theme that we've seen across all of the Muddler is the amount of focus around making it 
more of like a crawl, walk, run approach for the staff with when it comes back. Like, hey, you're not just gonna be able to come back and make all these drinks at last rites. It's like there's got to be a learning curve because you know you're move, you're using seven, eight, nine, ten ingredients with each drink. That's a tough learning curve that you have to put on. So it's refreshing to hear that you care so much about your staff and that's important to you. You know, at the end of the day, too, it's like I hold myself to certain standards and they definitely will never be the same as what I hold the staff to. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always going to be a difference between the standards I put on myself and the standards I put on the staff. I want my staff to come to work, be able to focus on doing a good job, focus on chatting people up doing all those things. I don't want them to be so stressed out about the drinks. No offense to anyone out there yeah, yeah, <laughs> that has like crazy drink menus. That's great. If you can pull it off, it's actually very impressive. But, you know, the drinks have always been a large part of what we do here, but it's not what defines the bar by any means. I want it to be delicious. I want it to be able to be made fast. I want to be able to find moments where we can stand out being the type of bar that we are. Yeah. What is the inspiration when, when you're thinking about a... Because actually, first question, how often are you changing the menu? So it used to be three menus a year, okay. which is, I guess, like every every four months, which was a chaotic time. Mm-hmm. And now the last few years, I've done two menu changes a year. So kind of like a spring, summer, and a fall, winter. So going back to the original question around inspiration, how are you inspired? Like, where are you coming up? Where do you find ideas? How often are you iterating? There's a lot of answers to that question. <laughs> I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Creatively, I definitely ran into a wall last year because when it came time to come up with this menu... I was like, I've never been this. It's like kind of like writer's block. It was like, this was always like the fun part. This isn't fun right now. And it was really just because I was like, we need some new drinks. But I also am just so removed from drinking and being in bars. And there's bars that I go to when I want to kind of start thinking about that process. And different drinks will taste different in different bars kind of thing. So it's like, okay, what's going to translate to what we do here? What's going to translate to people drinking a drink on Market Street, which is something that no one ever got to do before. So there was a few parts of things that were helping me come up with this menu. I knew what time of year it was going to be. I knew it was going to be a warm summer. Things have been getting warmer lately. It's like, obviously, the seasons in San Francisco are kind of, they get blurred a lot. But for the most part, this reads as like a refreshing, easy to approach menu. But I really just started with the first drink on the list and was just like, okay, what is this going to look like? I really don't like recycling drinks, but sometimes it's very necessary, especially when I'm in one of those creative lulls. So I pulled a few drinks from past menus that worked really well. And that's great. Like if you know it worked well before, it's probably going to work well now. I don't like to do it all the time because I don't want people to think we're just kind of like going through a Rolodex every time we make a menu. So the first one on the menu here is the Kentucky Peach, which is a pre-made kegged cocktail, right? How many keg cocktails do you have on the menu right now? And why have you decided or why do you decide to go with that approach? So that's something that Sean, my business partner, and I decided to research. It's been a long time. That was kind of right around the time I started managing. And that was like one of the first projects he kind of put in my lap. He's like, I want to do draft cocktails. I was like, okay, great. So I kind of went down this road of who's doing these? What does it take to do it? How can we pull it off? And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of research. There's not a ton of information out there. I actually have tried to be one of the people who shares as much information as I can. I have people pretty regularly reaching out to me, asking me for help with that kind of thing. But what I did was just go to a few places that were doing it, drank some drinks, figured out what they were doing. How is this going to translate in the bar? And the, the, the biggest reason why we wanted to do it is for speed. There was a time, and no, don't get me wrong, we're still busy and we're very happy about our business, but there's times in this bar, just like many bars, where it can get slammed. And when you have four drinks that you can pour like a beer, it really, really, really helps. 
the biggest challenge is how do you make those drinks still be interesting and not make it be like they're in a different class of themselves. So I, I kind of like them to just blend into the menu and sound great. But my goal every time I make those four draft cocktails, because we have four taps, so I always do four drinks on every menu. Mm -hmm. I want those to be the four most popular cocktails. That just makes sense. So let's talk about the Kentucky Peach then and, and the story behind that and how you came up with it. So I don't always do vodka drinks. I don't have anything against vodka cocktails. I just feel like there was a time where our vodka cocktail on the menu was the highest seller. And then it kind of waned quite a mm. bit. So we had a few menus where we didn't have a vodka drink. And then I thought like, let's just try something new. Let's, let's revisit this. It's not a sexy story by any means, but the inspiration for the drink is a product that's in it. It's this peach puree from this company that actually peach is such a hard flavor to get. Whether you want to use real peaches or whether you want to use a syrup, it's just very finicky and that's the first time I tried something that was peach flavored. That's It's actually made from peaches. It's not peach flavored. Because it can get too sweet. Is that why? Yeah. So you don't want it to be too sweet, but it's also, there's something about eating a peach where a lot of that flavor actually comes from eating it and the pulp and things like that. So how do you make something taste like peach without it being like having a bunch of peach in it? Mm -hmm. So, and I've, over the years I've tried and I've never made a peach cocktail that I loved. So that was like, okay, that stuff's delicious. I want to use it in this cocktail. So I wanted to make something super simple. It's just a couple of ingredients, just lemon juice, this peach puree from Liquid Alchemist, vodka, and I use a little bit of an Americano, which is like a bitter fortified wine, just to kind of like pull back on that sweetness a little bit. Okay. Did you kind of just know that's what you wanted to go with before? Did it take a lot of iterations? No, it was it was pretty simple. Every one of those cocktails that we do on draft are carbonated. Mm. So not to make it sound more complicated, but that's just one thing that when I went down that road and I wanted to do draft cocktails, I was like, okay, what can I do in this process that instead of just making a drink that I can just make from scratch, how do I make something a little bit different? So all of those drinks on draft are carbonated and there's something that happens in that process that just changes the drink in a good way. It just gives it like a little bit of brightness, a little bit of bubbliness. So they're all kind of like bright and refreshing and bubbly when they come off that tap. And that just kind of lended really nicely to the, just the flavors that I wanted to use. I wanted to keep it simple. I didn't want it to be sweet. That's it. Let's move and talk about the drink that we're having right now, which is a blended cocktail, which I'll be, be honest, I didn't expect you guys to have a blended cocktail. It's not the vibe that I get here, but that's okay. And it's delicious. So it's no bad days. How did this come about? Where did you get the name from? The whole history here. No bad days is kind of like this. It's almost like a mantra. Like some people say it pretty often where it's just like, it's just like a way of life. I don't even know where it originates from. I've seen it on like tattoo flash, things like that. It's just kind of like a funny little saying, like, instead of saying like, don't worry, be happy or something yeah, like yeah. that, it's just like no bad days. You know what I mean? Like life is good. And I kind of thought it was funny because it's a little bit, you know, we're coming, <laughs> we're coming off a pretty rough year, but it also, there's something about that saying that kind of just lends to like drinking a tropical cocktail. Every summer menu, spring summer menu for the last, I'd say four years, I've done a blended cocktail and slushy machines are great. They're humongous and they're ugly. Mm -hmm. And as much as I would love to just put this into a slushy machine and have that luxury, we don't have a lot of space back mm -hmm. there. We don't have a lot of space in this bar. We kind of like have maxed out every square inch that we have behind the bar. And um, there's an easy way to do it. And that's just like using a blender. So yeah. if you can get it dialed in and get the staff to make that drink to spec every time, use the right amount of ice, it should come out perfect every time. I really wanted to go for something on the drier side with this drink. 
when you read it, it sounds like a, like a tiki style drink. It sounds tropical, but I wanted it to come off as just not sweet and very refreshing. It definitely will read like a pina colada because it has coconut in it. I think most people, when they see coconut, you're either going to order that drink because it has coconut or you're going to stay away from it. It's kind of a polarizing ingredient, but I love it. I love pina coladas. So it's definitely like in that world of pina coladas, but with a little little bit different uh, flavor profile. You definitely get the dryness of it, which is interesting. When you think of blended drinks, I don't necessarily associate dryness with it but you can definitely as you go through you can taste it on your tongue just like anything you can make drinks as complex as you want it to the drink itself is really simple it's a couple of rums a tiny bit of creme de cacao and i really just there's something about creme de cacao and passion fruit that i love i've been guilty of using those things (laughs) in a few cocktails and you know just like going back to recycling things if i'm not going to put that drink that i thought about in the past that i use passion fruit and cacao in i'll come up with a different way to use it but you put the creme de cacao with the, the two different rums. You're mixing that together first. Correct. Okay, gotcha. And that's more for convenience. Yeah. So instead of having three bottles in my well taking up space, there's one bottle. Mm-hmm. And there's some people out there that don't like that. Yeah. yeah. That's the way we do it here. We need as much space as we can. <laughs> yeah. And it and it just makes for, you know, and, it, and at the end of the day, it comes back to how am I going to get this drink in that person's hand as fast as I can? Mm-hmm. I don't think you're sacrificing any of the quality when you do those things. There's purest ways to look at things and there's ways to look at things where how am I going to make my customer happy as possible and get that drink in their hand? Do you have a, a favorite drink on the menu right now? This is one of them. I don't like recommending this one as my favorite. I'm, that's a hard question in the field, actually, when people are like, what do you suggest? I think this drink is delicious. It's not something I would just hand out to anybody, though. There's still people in this world that would get this drink sight unseen and be like, oh, okay, I got the girly drink. Yeah, exactly. And then I scoff and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. So I try to not go down that road, but it's delicious. And I think anyone should always drink a blended drink when they know it's going to be delicious. In terms of on the menu and ones that you were just like, it just took you a while to nail. Is there anyone that you're just like, God, this took me forever. And I think I finally got it. Hmm. I would say the menu in general was tricky for me because I was just so out of the loop. There was a cocktail on the menu that I found to be really delicious, and it was a suggestion from another bartender. <laughs> and sometimes I really, really try not to be the the guy that's like, that's great, but can we try it with this? Yeah. <laughs> and it's really just because it's like I want it to be as best as it can be. So he had a really good idea for a cocktail, and then we went back and forth, and then we both ended up really liking the end result. And I was like, are you not annoyed with me? Like, Because I didn't, I didn't, like, I don't want people to feel like they're going to put a drink on the menu just for me to put my... <laughs> my hands all over it but it it worked out really good it's the pink tuxedo jordan came up with it it's kind of like it does not read like this at all but it's kind of like a vesper Mm. it's kind of got like a build like a vesper where it's mostly aquavit a little bit of gin and then americano which is like a fortified wine like a bitter fortified wine yeah so a vesper would be vodka gin and lalay which is something similar to to the americano a little softer but so this is like Got a little bit of bitterness. The Aquavit's infused with strawberry, which came out amazing. And then we use this gin that's coconut wash, which basically means it's they make this gin. You can buy the gin without the coconut, but they make a version of it where they wash it with coconut oil. Mm-hmm. And it just it's delicious. Wow. Okay, that sounds amazing. I would you're right. I would not read that as a Vesper at all. That's completely different. Um, but it's cool that that's where it was like his his starting inspiration was. Now for the names and how Matt comes up with them. The menu itself for the drinks takes up the entirety of the wall at the far end of the bar. It is big and it grabs your attention. Not only do you need to read the menu to figure out your order, but the drinks pop with fun and catchy names. Names that might determine your order more than the ingredients themselves. 
so the names you have some pretty unique names here you know you got the yacht rock royalty the tiger bomb sad bastard like where do you come up with these names <laughs> so a lot of them i come up with because the thing that happens is someone will come up with a great drink and they're like i don't have a name for it and i'm like can you come up with a name for it? And they're like, I can. And I think most people don't want to do it because they don't want to come up with a name that they get embarrassed about. So over the years, I've kind of had like this weird, like, okay, I'll name your drink and I'll, and I'll go out there. And, 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 you know, I'm the one that's constantly scanning menus, going to places, thinking like that. So I want to have, I don't want to name something, you know, I want to use a name that's been used already. We like to use things that are funny, awkward, (laughs) or just like, ridiculous yeah. sometimes we, weird i mean we, we mentioned weird a couple times in the show i think that's a, that's a good vibe i don't know i think it lends to everything where it's like you know the place is kind of unassuming like that and you look at the menu and you're kind of like oh well, there's some interesting names up there things i like to stay away from are childish names mm-hmm. i think that that's like an easy road for people to go down mm-hmm. like think of like a weird perverted thing it's yeah. like all right let, let's you're keep freak, that you're freaking me out yeah let's bit. keep that <laughs> off our menus but you know i like to give people a giggle the sad bastard <laughs> is a is a drink it's funny because it's it sounds so straightforward, but it's actually a it's a riff on the suffering bastard. Mm-hmm. So when my friend Andrew, who used to work here, made it, we've used this drink in the past. We just cracked up a couple of his drink names had funny names, but it's just funny when people order it. They kind of <laughs> it sounds delicious, so they're gonna get it, and then they also have like this weird like shameful moment when they're like, "Oh, have a sad bastard, please." <laughs> <laughs> the pink tuxedo. The reason why I use that the drink is pink. We have a lot of pink drinks. We like pink drinks here. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a cocktail called a tuxedo that is not super similar to that, but it's not that different. It's a stirred gin cocktail. Mm. It's close enough that I felt like it was appropriate to use. Now for the finale of the interview. You guessed it, the last call segment. Given that Matt has been at Blackbird exclusively for the past 11 years, we had a good feeling we were going to get a good story specific to the bar. We didn't know what we were in for, though. Needless to say, this story definitely showcased the variety of characters that can pop in and out of the establishment. I was thinking about this earlier and I was scanning my brain and there's a lot of stories that I have to leave out for, <laughs> for many reasons, you know, just the, either they're too ridiculous or I don't want my name tied to it. But there, for some reason, there's this, this specific <laughs> night that, that comes to mind where there was a, a customer and she was very nice. Sometimes I'm not the best at picking up on signals. Like mm-hmm. I'm, you know, got my head down. I'm in work mode. I'm here. I want to, I want to make you your drink. I want to make sure you're happy. Not too much else gets past my my radar. And, you know, she was very nice, very sweet. She kept coming up. She kept trying to chat me up. And, you know, when I'm at work, I keep it moving. I don't have time for chit-chat unless we're slow. You know, no offense. And then all of a sudden she comes and we're slammed. And she comes back and she's trying to get my attention and she's waving at me. And I'm like, oh, God, what's going on here? And she's like, I just wanted to let you know that you are so sweet and you're so good at your job and you made me feel so good tonight. I want to give you this cheese plate and just pulls this cheese plate out of, I'm like, where did you get that? And I was afraid to eat it because it was just so like, I did not eat it. I threw it in the trash. Hold on. Was it like a cheese plate that was like open and like it was just like cheese on a plate, literally? It was, it was a piece of cardboard with (laughs) various types of cheeses crackers and spreads it was wrapped in plastic so i don't know if it was in her car or if she like bought it off someone or went to safeway and bought it Wait, it was on cardboard yeah i'm thinking like box cardboard like you like a move like a u-haul box it's kind of like a like a layer of cardboard you put under a pizza okay like the okay. round thing okay 
and it had like Ritz crackers and like some other nicer crackers. But it was just like, I was just so, and it was just like, it was so busy that I just couldn't even like, I couldn't even like wrap my head around what just happened. And I'm sure there's a million other stories that are way better. But for some reason, that one just sticks out in my brain all the time because I still don't understand what was going on. Like, was there poison in the cheese? Was, that, like, was, <laughs> that was here at Blackbird? Yeah. Okay. Come to Blackbird where you get great drinks and maybe cardboard cheese plates. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Matt, for the time. Before we go, I want you to pump up anything that you guys are doing at Blackbird with reopening, how people can get a hold of you, the hours, all that good stuff. Yeah. So we're back to seven days a week. We changed our hours a little bit because I think a lot of us still need to maintain our sleep schedules. So we're open four to 12, Monday through Thursday. And then on the weekends, we're open till two. So four to two on Friday, two to two on Saturday, two to 12 on Sunday. We are on Instagram at Blackbird Bar SF. Check out our sister bar that'll be opening again in July. So July 5th, I want to say. They're opening soon. Detour. So Detour is our other bar that's up the street. It's an arcade bar. Sean Vergara, my business partner, opened that place. It is the first official arcade bar to happen in San Francisco, despite what most people know. He actually got the legislations changed and got a lot of things moved around so that people can open arcade bars. So represent and support that one. They have a full kitchen as well. And yeah, we're back trying to ease back into this. Yeah, we've got a new menu. We've got a fun project on the way. Maybe I'll keep it secret. I don't know. Maybe not. (laughs) But yeah, we're coming out of the pandemic with nothing but good things. The staff's back. Everyone you loved that was at Blackbird previously is going to be back behind the bar again. And that's it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for the time. Drinks were great. Your stories were great. Appreciate it. Thanks. There you have it. That wraps up Blackbird. Thanks so much to Matt for chatting with us and willing to be vulnerable during a recording time. Blackbird is at 2124 Marcus Street and is back to being open seven days a week. Their sister bar, The Detour, is just a few blocks away, also on Market Street in the Castro. Stop by at either bar and let them know the muddler sent you. Next week, we're off to the Richmond to feature a neighborhood staple and low ABV bar, High Treason. The Muddler is a Studio Pod Media original podcast. I'm your host, TJ Bonaventura. Our writer is Joey Mezzatesta. Editing and music provided by Notalap. For more information, make sure you subscribe and rate us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go to themuddlerpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at themuddlerpodcast.com.